Father, I pray that you would cause a holy wonder to fall upon us now so that we would magnify Christ our Saviour by our attentiveness to your word and our desire to, to please you in all things, knowing that we have your full pleasure upon us. Please bless this time for your name's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A reminder, last week, the holiness of God, looking at these five glimpses of God's holiness, firstly in his glorious majesty, which we see in Isaiah 6, then his furious anger, that account in number 16 of God's wrath breaking out against the Israelites, his transcendent imminence, this idea that an incomprehensible God can actually be known and how uh, marvelous that is. His perfect knowledge, the fourth glimpse, looking at this God whom no one can consult, no one can teach him anything, for he knows every single thing. And lastly, his universal dominance. Through the book of Revelation, we get this clear picture of just this conquering king. So the picture we get of God's holiness is not some weak God who is just kind of hoping that his children can get along and eventually he'll come and uh, make things okay. Actually, the picture we get is of this supremely dominant God who right now is sovereign over everything, who is angry against sin, who is marvelous in every sense of the word, and all people will bow their knees and tremble before him. And in light of God's holiness, we have the command in Scripture, and as we see in our passage today, be holy, for I am holy. As God's holiness demonstrates that he is set apart, so we are called to live these set-apart lives, to be different, to be distinct, to be holy, because that is what he has called us to. Holiness is separation. Holiness at its core is separation from the profane and a dedication to God. The Hebrew word literally means to cut. It's like to cut and then separate. So you are cut off from the unclean in order to be given to that which is pure. And that's holiness and that's what we've been called to. A commitment to pursue godliness and righteousness while remaining undefiled by the world. Now holiness, pursuing personal holiness, is not the most popular topic to speak on because hand in hand with personal holiness is the call to die to yourself, to die to your love of the world, to live holy for Christ. So you're cut off. You can't have the world anymore. Like Jesus says, you can't serve God and mammon. These two things are mutually exclusive. You are cut off from one in order to be wholly devoted to Christ. Holiness requires costly responsibility as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. And that goes against our natural state of self-pleasing. It goes against our natural state of um, pleasing ourselves and an aversion to cost, which is perhaps why it's maybe not the most popular. And if you look at um, the bestseller list of any regular Christian bookstore, uh, 
the, the most popular books are really, and I did a bit of a search through the week, books on marriage, a surprising amount of books on sex for, for Christians, uh, and then all of these therapeutic themes like finding joy in the struggle and, and these sort of like self-help ideas. And I couldn't find one on the call to holiness. I couldn't find one on pursuing personal holiness. J.C. Ryle, who wrote uh, the, I would say, one of the dominant books on personal holiness, it's literally called Holiness, written about 150 years ago. He said in his book, Satan knows well the power of true holiness and the immense injury which increased attention to it will do to his kingdom. It is therefore in his best interest to promote strife and controversy about this part of God's truth. Just as in time past, he has succeeded in mystifying and confusing men's minds about justification, which was what was happening 500 years ago in the Reformation, just as Satan previously mystified and confused men's minds about that. So now he is laboring in the present day to make men darkened about sanctification to make men's minds darkened about the need for holiness in our lives. And the reason why this is so important is important is because it could be said that holiness is the goal of God's redemptive work in you. Holiness is the goal of God's redemptive work in you. Kevin DeYoung, who also wrote a book on holiness said the reason for your entire salvation, the design behind your deliverance, the purpose for which God chose you in the first place is holiness. Oswald Chambers, another key figure in the subject of holiness, said God has only one intended destiny for mankind, holiness. His only goal is to produce saints. God is not some eternal blessing machine for people to use. And he did not come to save us out of pity. He came to save us because he created us to be holy. Now, lest you say Tom is just quoting other people and not scripture, let's look at what scripture says about this theme. Ephesians 1, 3 to 4. Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The purpose of God's election is that we would be holy. John 17, 19, as Jesus prays his high priestly prayer, and he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is saying, for their sake, I consecrate myself, which is not saying he he is made holy. It's more talking about his service to the Lord. For their sake, I consecrate myself so that they, those who believe in me, may be sanctified, may be made holy. That's the purpose. Paul's prayer to the Thessalonians in chapter 3 is that their love would abound so that their hearts would be established blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Holiness is essential to the Christian life. That can't be overstated. Now, there is a foundation that I want to lay before we look at 1 Peter chapter 1. There's a necessary foundation for understanding holiness. We have to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. 
And sanctification, uh, if you didn't know, is, is the same word um, in the Greek language as holiness. They come from the same word group. So holiness and sanctification are, are, are basically meaning the same thing, depending on the context. So justification is, of course, the uh, event, the declarative event where God declares us right. Justification, because of the personal work of Jesus Christ on the cross, is where God, for those who have faith in Jesus, are declared righteous. We are justified, which not only means that we are forgiven of our sin, but it's as if we have done everything right because we receive the life of Christ. That's justification. It's an event. We are justified. It's sealed by the blood of Christ. We are justified. So therefore, positionally before God, we are right in his eyes. We're completely right because we are in Christ. That's justification. Now, in this sense, we already are sanctified. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. To the Corinthian church, after he tells them to get away from ungodliness and immorality, and he says, do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor uh, practicing homosexuals, nor drunkards, nor the greedy. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, and some, as such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, all past tense. You were, it's happened. Our reality in Christ is that we have been made holy. That's a wonderful gift that we have. But then there is, of course, this reality of our ongoing sin. This life in this present age of sin where we stumble and we fall into sin. Now, of course, when we sin, it doesn't undo our positional holiness that we have in Christ. But there is this reality that we live in this world where we sin. So we, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, need to be continuously transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And this is sanctification in terms of pursuing personal holiness. We have the declared event of justification and then we have this ongoing transformative work of the Holy Spirit where we are sanctified, which is our pursuit of personal holiness. So while we have passages like 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, you were sanctified, you were justified, we then have Hebrews 12, 14, which says, pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. Pursue holiness without which you will not see the Lord. So there is an ongoing pursuit of holiness in the life of the believer that, as Hebrews 12 says, if it's not there, you won't see the Lord. You will not see the Lord. It would be the evidence that you have never actually been justified because those who have been justified are set on a trajectory toward holiness. So we receive the, the encouragement to pursue holiness so the process of our sanctification, the process of us pursuing holiness is us pursuing the reality of our justification. Let me try and say that in simple terms. Holiness is the realignment of our lives to conform to our new reality in Christ. That's what holiness is. In even simpler terms, our task is to be what we are. 
That's our task. It's to be what we are. We have been made this in Christ. Now we spend the rest of our lives before Christ returns or before he brings us home being what we are. That's pursuing personal wholeness. It's like if a child was adopted out of a, a state of absolute degradation and abuse, taken out of the slums, and they are brought into this new family, this loving family. They are given food on the table, a, a new life. They have clothes. They have finances. And this child relishes in this new love. And then as they're eating dinner, this child uh, accidentally flicks a little pea off his plate because they're hard to get with a fork and it goes off to the father. And immediately the child runs to the corner and starts cowering because he assumes he's made a mess, he's going to get beaten. And then after the family reassures him, hey, it's okay, you're not, that's never going to happen. Okay, you're in, you're in a new reality now, you're safe. Then there's one last bread roll on the table. He sees his new sibling going for it, instincts kick in. He immediately slaps his hand and starts punching the guy because he's always been taught to fight for food. And so the family have to reassure him, hey, we have masses of bread rolls. There's an abundance. You will be provided for. You don't have to do that anymore. So while this child is in his new reality, but while he is acting like this, there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect between his new reality and his manner of life. And he needs to go on a process of conforming his manner of life to this new reality. And this is personal holiness. We need to constantly be conformed to this new life that we have in Christ. It's like in Ephesians 4, the passage that we didn't read out, but I've got there in your uh, sheets. But if you do have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, so the main main uh, verses are where Paul says from verse 22 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is saying put off your old self that's not you anymore put on the new self created in righteousness and holiness. We must realign our lives to the new reality that we have in Christ. So this is what personal holiness is, conforming our lives to this new reality in Christ. Now let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. So this is our main text here, 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. There are four aspects that I want to look at today to understand personal holiness. The first aspect is that holiness requires a soldier-like determination. So the example that Peter uses here in 1 Peter 1, in verse 13, just read it with me. He says, Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, this is in the context of the salvation that we have received. So going all the way back to verse 9, uh, verses 8 and 9, he says to the believers, the new believers, though you have not seen him, that is 
Christ. You love him, though you do not see him now. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So he's saying you're receiving this salvation. It's present tense. Your life now is receiving the salvation of your souls. And then he talks about how this was long to be looked in by the prophets. And he says in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. This is uh, Peter using the example of soldiers who in this day would, would uh, you know, 2000 years ago, would wear long robes, long garments. And if they want to go off to battle, they have to tuck in their robe into their waist. And it's kind of like them getting prepared to go to war. And so we have the translation. Uh, Preparing your minds for action. It's like saying, get ready to go to war. Get ready to go to war as you pursue personal holiness. Pursuing holiness is to be very intentional and diligent in what you think about and how you act. It's a soldier mentality which takes every thought captive in order to obey Christ. It's the kind of mind that Paul asks of Timothy when he says, be a good soldier in Christ and a good soldier does not get entangled in civilian affairs. They please their commanding officer. So don't get entangled in civilian affairs. Don't be distracted. Just a chapter later in 1 Peter 2, Peter warns the believers to abstain from passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. He's saying this is not... Fun and games. There is a battle. There is a cosmic battle going on. And you have the responsibility to abstain from everything that wages war, from from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Like in chapter 5, Peter says, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. That's the reality of our new life in Christ. I know in this affluent society in Australia, it seems pretty easy to be a Christian, but there is this reality of warfare. So we must have a mind that is ready for action, a mind for action to face the daily battles that we have. And these battles are subtle battles. They are battles of distraction, from mindless scrolling or streaming. They are battles of busying ourselves with socializing or work so that we have little to no room for intentional time with the Lord. It was, I think, Corrie Ten Boom who said, if the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy. Both cut off your devotion to Christ. The battles that we have of being conformed to this apathetic society which treats sin as normal and righteousness as abnormal. Those are the battles that we have and our minds must be prepared for action so that these subtle battles do not destroy us on this path of holiness. We are to be sober-minded. Peter says here, a drunk mind is not alert. When you are physically drunk, you, uh, your senses are severely impaired. When we are intoxicated, 
by this world, we are susceptible to savage beasts that we assume are harmless doves. When we are intoxicated by this world, we become influenced by victim mentality mindsets that cause us to not take accountability for sin and that stunt our growth. We become influenced by the sexualized world we live in that devours us. To be sober-minded is to be very alert and attuned to the things of God. I can't uh, stress this enough. Personal holiness requires a soldier-like determination to fix your eyes upon Christ and avoid at all costs anything that will impair their devotion to him. The pattern of scripture is just so clear to talk about these things, like Peter says in chapter 5, as the devil, as a roaring lion, waiting to devour you, waiting to consume you. We need a soldier-like determination. The second aspect, holiness has a heavenly hope. Peter goes on to say that we must set our hope fully upon the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. The distinctiveness of the follower of Jesus is that they do not have their hope set on this world. Their hope is not set on this world. Their hope is not set on a good career. Their hope is not set on making lots of friends. Their hope is not even set on having a good family. That's not the hope of the Christian. Their hope, our hope, is totally set upon the full realization of this salvation that we have tasted and we've seen it as good and we want the whole banquet. We want all of it. So our hope is totally set upon the grace to be brought to us when? At the revelation of Christ. When the fullness of it comes. Holiness is to be distinct in where we place our hope. It's interesting that just a few Verses later in chapter 3, in probably the most common passage people go to when they talk about Christians giving um, a defense, where in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, always be ready to give a defense or um, an account for the hope that is in you. And, and we use that um, usually in apologetics, a good passage to say we must be ready to give a reason for the hope. And this comes in the context of Christians suffering even though they do good. So notice in verse 14 of chapter 3, Peter says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This is in the context of Christians struggling because they are persecuted and they are suffering for righteousness. And then Peter says, In your hearts, Honour Christ the Lord as holy. Do you know, as I was reading this through the week, I'd forgotten that that actually came right before because I'm so used to just saying, always be ready to give a defence for the hope that is in you. And I'd just completely forgotten that, well, actually, of course, there's a context, but right before, Peter says, before you even do this, honour the Lord in your hearts. Revere him. Make sure he is sanctified. So there are two observations in this here. Peter's expectation is that, as our hearts revere Christ as holy, we therefore will be holy. When our, our hearts revere Christ as holy, our lives follow that same pattern. You can't revere Christ in your heart as holy and live in unholiness. You can't. 
you're not revering Christ as holy and therefore your life is unholy. You revere Christ in your heart as holy and therefore your life follows the direction of your heart. So the foundation before even getting to the opportunity to give a defense for your faith is that you are honoring Christ as holy, that you are revering him as holy. And therefore your life will follow that pattern. The second observation then after that, after we revere Christ as holy, is that people then must see something intriguing about our lives. When is the last time, if ever, you were asked the question, you've got an interesting hope. Tell me about that. Tell me about that hope that you have. This passage implies that someone will ask a reason. They'll ask a question, why? And of course, in the context, well, if someone is doing good and they're being punished and they're just accepting it, boy, that's, that's unusual. Why do you have that hope? When people see an otherworldly hope that Peter assumes the Christians will have as they face unjust and abusive people, and yet it does not crush their hope in the coming salvation. When people see that, they ask a reason. And I wonder if not many people ask a reason for the hope within us is because our lives are not holy. Our lives are not set apart. We look safe. We look comfortable. We have our hopes set on the here and now. Our thoughts are given to all of these materialistic things. We are called to have a different hope. We are called to have a different hope that allows us to accept terrible circumstances and not whinge out of a sense of entitlement about them, but to accept them because we have this treasure that is secure in Christ that no one will ever take away. No unjust circumstances can ever threaten the security we have in Christ, the hope that we have. The only way that we can say, like Paul, the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us is if we have an otherworldly hope in something beyond this world. Our lives should be marked by this otherworldly hope. And this comes as we set it fully upon the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. Our third aspect here just to summarize i feel like it's been a bit disjointed just to summarize the foundation of holiness is of course the understanding of justification the one-off event and then sanctification that our lives pursuing personal holiness is us realigning reorienting our lives with our new reality that's living in the truth. To live in unholiness, yet to profess to follow Christ is living an absolute lie. So we realign our lives. And then in 1 Peter 1, we have the first foundation, this soldier-like determination that we must have to pursue holiness. Secondly, is that holiness has a heavenly hope and we see that in people asking a reason for the hope that is in us because it's actually a heavenly hope. It's not just a worldly hope. It's not just hoping that I have a good job, I can have a good family, travel the world a bit, do some Christian things. That's not a hope that anyone would ever ask a reason for. 
And now thirdly, holiness is both separation from worldliness and devotion to God. This is verses 14 to 15. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, which is to say the passions when you did not know God. Don't be conformed to that lifestyle. And I would put the passions of our former ignorance under the banner of worldliness, which is why holiness is a separation from worldliness. And the reason I use worldliness is because I believe the biblical authors use this. And I think James, the author James, in chapter 4 of his letter says this when he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? The same idea here. It's all about these passions that are waging war against your flesh. And James says, this is what causes war. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You cover and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then he says, you adulterous people. You are an adulterous People, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is an enemy against God, an enemy of God. This is worldliness. Passions at war within us because we are united. We're in this bond, this relational bond with the world. So what does it mean to be united in friendship with the world? Do we take the Amish route? just separate ourselves from everything? Well, rather than worldliness being a list of prohibited activities, as often it has become like, don't drink alcohol, don't dance, don't go on holidays, don't be on social media. Uh, That's not pursuing personal holiness, and that's not necessarily worldliness. We should understand worldliness as when our hearts are directed toward these things for our sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. Worldliness is when our hearts are directed toward these things of the world and that is our sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. That's where we find our joy. So if social media or streaming a TV series is your dominant escape, if if you even think about it as like an escape, and that's the place where you feel the most grounded, then there is a problem. There's a problem of worldliness coming in. That becomes your refuge. If your joy and pleasure is solely found in holidays or socializing, and especially if it's not found in the communal gathering of God's people to worship the risen Christ, then you have succumbed to worldliness. There's a problem. So what's the solution? It can't simply be to stop doing these things that are neither good or bad, some of them. But the solution is, of course, to direct our passions toward the only one who is worthy of our passions. Notice what Peter says here. Do not be conformed to old passions, but instead, and implied in instead, he's kind of saying, be conformed to this 
be conformed to the pattern of holiness since he who called you is holy. So you be conformed to this. It's the same uh, idea as Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Direct your passions toward the only one who is able to satisfy your desires. If you simply stop doing worldly things without seeking your satisfaction in Christ, then that's not pursuing personal holiness. That's just some asceticism or monastic life void of true devotion to Christ. Personal holiness is to pursue Christ as supremely worthy of every ounce of our devotion, every aspect of our life, which is why Peter says, in all of your conduct, in verse 14, or 15 rather, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, which is your manner of life. It's more like a posture. He's saying this transforms everything. So we must see how wonderfully majestic our God is. We must put practices in our lives that cause us to behold the wonder of Christ. I've mentioned this many times before. I think one of the most practical applications of this is to pray every morning like Moses did. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our lives. Pray with Moses and say, Lord, satisfy me. Nothing in this world will. You, as the God who opens your hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing, satisfy my heart today. Otherwise, it'll go off to fruitless things and I'll, I'll, I'll wind up discontent. But you, I can be satisfied and content in you. So satisfy me this morning in your steadfast love. This is what shapes us. This is what conforms us to the pattern of holiness. It conforms us to Christ. So holiness is not simply moral principles. It is a changed heart. It is a changed heart that desires Christ. This leads us to the final point. By pursuing Christ, we pursue true humanness. By pursuing Christ... We are pursuing true humanness. Jesus is our starting point and end point for wholeness. As I've said, it's not simply an abstract list of moral principles, though morality should come from a life of holiness. Don't get me wrong. There should be a high level of morality amongst those who are pursuing Christ, but it's not reduced to just a list of do's and don'ts. Holiness is to pursue Christ. And this means that to pursue holiness is actually to pursue true humanness. We often use, you may have heard before, the phrase, well, I'm only human. And we use that to basically say, well, I'm only a sinner. I'm only human. But of course, that's not right because Jesus was fully human and he never sinned. Never. He is the perfect human. So true humanness is found in conforming ourselves to Christ, in being transformed more and more to follow Him. That's true humanness. Holiness is to pursue true humanness. So it is ridiculous 
frustratingly ridiculous that holiness can take on negative connotations like being boring. That's outrageous. Holiness is to be more Christ-like and in Christ is the fullness of life. That's an abundance of life. It's boring to live in this world following a few sexual pleasures, doing some drugs and partying a bit, maybe having a good career. A career. That's, a, that's a terrible life. True life is found in Christ. In Him is the fullness of life. True life is found in being diligent, having a soldier-like determination, conforming ourselves to Christ. And where Christ is central, then holiness will rightly avoid all forms of moralism because the desire will come out of an empowering grace found in Christ. J.I. Packer says, holiness is always the saved sinner's response of gratitude for grace received. That's holiness. The saved sinner's response of gratitude for grace received. So if your life does not reflect a desire to grow in holiness, you've not understood grace. You've not understood grace if your life does not reflect a desire to grow in holiness. When we see the grace of God, like we went through in Titus, when the grace of God appears, it trains us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to live holy lives. The grace of God does that. So where you have understood the wonder of God's gracious gift in Christ, then there must be a desire, like we read out in Ephesians 4, that Paul says, to put off the old self. Put it off. It's not yours anymore. Put on this new self created in righteousness and holiness. Why would you want to clothe yourself in distasteful conversations? Why would you want to clothe yourself in slander? Gossip. Why would you want to clothe yourself in pornography? Why would you want to clothe yourself in that? There is this new self created after Christ and the transformative work of the Spirit allows us to put that on, to live in holiness, to pursue lives of abundant joy following Christ. The call to be holy is the call to relentlessly pursue Christ and to be obedient to his commands, because like the psalmist says, in your commands, there is my delight. That's where I delight, in obedience to the commands of God. That's the path of true life. That's where I want to be. This is the path for a heart that has been saturated with the love of God in Jesus Christ.